0: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare.
1: Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Before COVID-19, there was another epidemic going on in Western countries. It was the allergy epidemic. It's been well-documented that allergies, especially food allergies, have been on the rise for almost 20 years, and there's really still no clear explanation for this trend. My guest today is Dr. Ann Maitland. She's a clinical assistant professor at Mount Sinai Hospital in the Department of Allergy and Immunology, and she has a private practice in Tarrytown, New York. I actually came across a lecture that Dr. Maitland had given online on mast cell activation. That's a subject, a a podcast I did a few weeks ago, and I realized after watching her presentation or lecture that she would be terrific to interview on a range of allergy topics. So it's with great pleasure I welcome Dr. Ann Maitland to the podcast.
0: This is a true honor, Dr. Mitchell. I appreciate being brought into this
1: atmosphere. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, you know, what we're going to start with is actually an article that you sent me from one of my favorite allergy researchers, Dr. Thomas Platt Mills from Virginia. He does great work. And he wrote a paper back in, I guess, July 2015 about the allergy and pediatric asthma epidemic. So just to get things started, because I have my opinions about things. Why do you think all these types of allergies, especially food allergies and pediatric asthma, has been on the rise you know, for the last two decades?
0: Well, you know, reflecting on the growing number of individuals that are dealing with, with hypersensitivity disorders, that was not a phenomena in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is now one of the ground zeros for, for allergy epidemic situations, and that includes the Bronx and Harlem. Okay. And, you know, when I was a kid, There wasn't a super stop and shop. I wasn't living close to a highway. You know, all of our foods, the materials that that were made of uh, for our clothes or the houses that we built were all from natural occurring substances. And I would have to borrow a, a phrase from one of my favorite movies, The Graduate when Dustin Hoffman's character was being introduced uh, saying, you know, what's the future? And, and his neighbor says, plastic. And it's
1: true. <laughs> yeah. Ask John Boehner. He made a lot of money that way. The former uh, majority whip. Yes. <laughs> the future is plastic. Exactly. That's a good one. The future, the future yeah. is
0: plastic. And yeah. <laughs> you have to think by 1980, when ATMs were being introduced and everything was being supersized and individually wrapped, The number of chemicals that we are exposed to is infinitely much greater. Matter of fact, I would say this generation probably has the most chemicals exposure, whether indoor or out, manufactured or naturally occurring. And also during that time, as a child, it must have been pouring rain for me to be indoors.
1: Right.
0: Nowadays, 90% of our time is inside of something, whether we're talking a car a uh, restaurant, an indoor playhouse, our work, our schools, yeah. in these so-called controlled environments where we're relying on whoever is pumping in the air, that the air quality is great, the building materials aren't tainted, and those exposures are completely overwhelming our bodies, where we inherited genes to deal with a much more natural consistent environment. And so when doctor platts Platts-Mills made the comment about we have to take into account how we live, sleep, drink, and breathe to understand why so many individuals are susceptible to hypersensitivity reactions, I think we need to look at our modern environment. This is a modern epidemic.
1: That's a great answer. I mean, seriously, it was very eloquent. I mean, you described it perfectly. I mean, he's talked about that in his research where he's said... You know, it seems like 90% of children and adults spend their time indoors, which is, you know, you get so much more exposure to dust mites, which was a lot of his research. And obviously, along with that, the lack of exercise and probably the reason for obesity and all that. And other indoor allergens, like you said, all the chemicals that they used to essentially seal buildings with now, the more airtight and... um and also animal dander. I'm sure you see this in your practice. I see it in mine. I mean, All day people are so allergic to cats and dogs now. I mean, it's like 50% of my immunotherapy practice. Uh, right. and, I, and I enjoy getting the patients better, but it's sad that they had to have this problem to begin with. But you know what? I want to ask you about one other thing too. I, I, I have my theory on this also. You know, there's the whole hygiene hypothesis. And for mm. our listeners, if they haven't heard about it, this is one of the big theories that's been promoted why there's so much allergy today. And essentially the hygiene hypothesis says that our environment in some ways is too sterile, which I never never sat well with me. And I'll explain you why. Is that the environment's too sterile and because kids aren't getting enough dirt exposure and also the vaccines, that was another thing too, that their immune system is becoming too I don't know if it was what's the right word, but clean that that's why there are increased allergies. But I'll tell you the reason I think there is, and I've seen some dramatic cases of this, it's antibiotics. And antibiotics, I know there's been studies in the first year of life, increase the risk of asthma. And now that I'm caring for more food allergy patients, and we'll talk about this later, I'm doing more sublingual immunotherapy for food allergy patients. I've had some three dramatic cases where the mother in her history during the pregnancy was given antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And again, a mother would tell me saying, you know, gosh, I have three other kids that didn't have any food allergies. And my uh, my third child, they had to give me antibiotics, you know, in the third trimester because I got an infection or whatever. And this is the one that's got several severe food allergies. So I was just wondering your thinking on that. Do you think that might be a-
0: I, I, I agree with you. I think- we so over abuse antibiotics. Even when you have a common cold, people are calling me and asking me for a, Z- a Z- pack, And I'm right. like, you know what, can we do some more interventions that don't rely on it? And I have to tell you, I've seen plenty of adults who have been treated for, quote-unquote, chronic Lyme, and they end up getting a tick Lyme and getting 6 months of iv antibiotics and they come out of it completely intolerant to all the foods that they used to eat before right. they become they can't stay in their home i had one person actually sell their home and move into another place because they no longer could live in their safe space anymore and right. so i think i think the root of whatever causes damage to the mucosal lining Whether you're talking your skin, your gut, or your respiratory tract, and especially your gastrointestinal tract, whether it's an antibiotic or pain medications, which are another thing that completely abuse the system as well, you break tolerance. You lose the ability to think that the world is no longer safe around you. And so you just go on guard and your cells are just standing on DEFCON 3 waiting for the most innocent thing to come along. And then you make memory of it. I remember when I was working with uh, Dr. Shuman Lee, who's done a lot of work with food allergies and traditional Chinese herbal therapy, and her mouse model was making mice allergic to cheese. And how did you do
1: it? How did you
0: do it? You had to traumatize some surface area, whether physically or chemically, like with an antibiotic, in order to make that mouse now think that cheese was dangerous. And we and we couldn't do it with just any mouse because she had this wonderful model that was working for years. And then all of a sudden it stopped working and we backtracked it. They changed the strain of the mice. So it's not every mouse. It's people with certain genes in this type of environmental exposure, whether intentional or unintentional, that just opens the door and tolerance. Last time I checked, wasn't free.
1: Do mice really like cheese? I was just curious about that. that that's just well, like I, cartoons. I, I,
0: I, I, I can tell you. I can tell you, in one of the schools that I went to in the Bronx, yeah, they love any. They like cheese. Yeah, they like any.
1: <laughs> they like anybody. I don't think they were so particular.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well,
1: you know, you lead me to my next question for you. It was almost a perfect segue because, again, one of the things that you did so well when I listened to your uh, lecture on mast cell activation was talking about mast cells. And this is something I really want to get into with you. I, I love that you mentioned when you were talking about mast cells that you gave them the uh, unofficial name, patrol officers. And I <laughs> and I like that because it really helped me understand. I want for the listeners, as you all, we all know, patrol officers aren't the ones that have the real guns. They're the ones that alert the team that there's something wrong. Right. Uh, and we may have more of that in the future anyway, versus regular police officers. So I want to get to something that's interesting because I think mast cells were ignored for a very long time. I mean, we knew that they were obviously the key for allergic reactions and for asthma. And Mm -hmm. I I want to take us back to our fellowship training. I'm going to just (laughs) story. You know, I trained at the Cook Institute of Allergy, which is like one of the oldest allergy institutes in the country.
0: That is is the original.
1: Right. They were like kind of prehistoric. And, you know, the first thing they teach you the first day before they even hand you over the hypodermic needles or syringes to do the skin testing, they would hand you a tongue blade and say, look, go to this person's back and stroke their back and look to see if they have something called dermatographism. And for our listeners, mm. that's when you have a lot of histamine in the skins because if you stroke somebody's back, they make this big red line. And I always tell the patients, ah, oh, you have so much histamine, I could write your name on your back. And they go, oh, yeah, I know that. And, um, <laughs> you know, and that obviously tips us off. That this patient's very reactive. In some cases, they can't even be skin tested because they're, you know, right. it's just there's too much histamine. But we then ignored it. You know, it was like, oh, that's just a benign condition. And after listening to your lecture, that made me rethink things so much about mast cells. And do you think that many of the urticarias, which are the hives like reactions that patients get, and angiodema, which is the swelling? are really essentially that these hypersensitive overactive mast cells?
0: In many ways, the mast cell is kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of the immune system, right? Mm -hmm. Our focus has been so much on T cells and B cells. But in order to get to the adaptive immune compartment, you have to go through the innate immune system. That's right. And, and that's the epithelial bar- barrier. So your skin, your gut, your respiratory tract, and the guard who sits right behind it, who are the first responders, and those are the mast cells. And if you look at individuals that have mast cell activation syndrome, pick an organ system. What happens if you degranulate uh, or you have that release of histamine and all these other chemical mediators, and instead of it being your skin, it's in your gastrointestinal tract. That's what right. does that look like? That's irritable bowel syndrome, right that's there right. and then. That's,
1: yeah, that's really important. I just want to point out to the listeners because you know, again, you did a whole lecture on this. That mast cells, again, especially you know, if you, you if you ask a general physician or, or any. Obviously a good physician. They're like, Oh, those are just an allergy cell. And then you always wonder to yourself, why would the body make a cell just for allergies? And you know, it wasn't like they thought about this <laughs> exactly. you know, hundreds of years ago. And it's, so that's why I call it a mystery cell because it's there. We can't see it in the blood. I mean, if you get right. a blood, if you get a blood test back, it doesn't show you mast cells. It's only, right. it's really tissue. And, mm-hmm. and then you talked about, which I think was a relatively new syndrome, this mast cell activation. And and pointing out that these cells are important. And again, just for the listeners, when we're saying the innate immune system, we're we're talking about the primitive immune system, right? And I and I think also we'll both be fascinated by this is that even in the whole thing with COVID infection, it's the mm-hmm. it's the this primitive immune system, because it's seeing the virus for the first time is causing right. havoc. And, and I think before even we get to all those T cells and B cells, but anyway, going back to the whole urticaria and angioedema that we see a lot in our practices. And, and you know, right. for years, we all saw things like pressure-induced swelling, the angioedema. And right? I would have patients come to me and say, I can't put a belt on. I can't, my shoes swell up. What do I do? And we tell them right. nothing, nothing to do. Or people would go in the water and they had something called aquagenic urticaria, meaning they go mm-hmm. in a pool, a cold pool, and they swell up. Doctor, what do I do? Well, we had a couple of antihistamines for that. And Again, after listening to your lecture, I was thinking, you know, dummy, it's the mast cell, you know, right. and uh, how do we contain or control that mast cell? So do you, do well, you think we'll have those physical urticarians and other ones? I,
0: I, I really think, going back to the analogy of the police officer, you know, when you think about mast cell disorders, it can happen one of two ways. You either have, you have a wonderful police officer precinct, but you might have one bad apple. And that's mastocytosis, right? right. That's very right. rare.
1: That's the, right. That's the serious, more what we right. call, like hematological, dangerous. Exactly. Yeah.
0: But the rest of the mast cells, police officers, when they leave the academy, are taught that these are the laws that need to be followed. Right. And sometimes there are bad laws on the books. Like, you know, years ago, Protestants couldn't marry Catholics, you know, <laughs> right? And so what if you have bad laws on the books, but they still have to respect? the loss because that's their job. Well, that's the mast cells. They have proteins that tell them this is what you're supposed to do. Like if you make an antibody immunoglobulin E to peanut and your body is stressed, it's going to look at the peanut as though it's dangerous and will attack it. Right. The same thing about the pressure urticaria, the physical urticaries, which are much more common, whether you're talking about stroking your skin like dermatographism or solar. I think we have pigeonholed the mast cells into being the allergy cell. But if you eliminate the mast cells, you, you're gone. Okay. Like you could be born without T cells and B cells. It might not be great, but you cannot be born without mast
1: cells. That's a great point. I never right? I never even thought about that. We're always so focused, in our, just so for the listeners to know, in our training, because we do allergy and immunology, and actually I'm giving a lecture in two weeks to the medical students all about primary Please. immunodeficiencies. But you know, it's so interesting. We always tend to ignore the primitive and innate immune system, because it's not as sexy as the the T cells and B cells doing all the cool things. But yeah, i never even heard of a disorder where somebody doesn't have mast cells, because it I guess it's incompatible with life.
0: It's incompatible with life, because right. mast cells, we focus on, on allergies, but mast cells are responsible for tissue defense. They have the ability to regulate blood flow because I had one patient who actually had a horrible allergic reaction, which was complicated with a bleeding and clotting disorder called disseminated intravascular coagulation because mast cells not only kick out histamine, it kicks out heparin and it kicks out platelet activating factor.
1: Right. That's what, you know, actually, I have to interrupt you because I wanted to ask you about that. So, when you were saying in that lecture, just to clarify, because again, this is a new disorder, so many people are reading a little bit about it. Because I know I've been getting calls to the office about this, and they're like, "Could I have mast cell activation? Should I be on a low histamine diet?" But when you check the blood in these patients, because it is tricky, do you look at the whatever that change in in certain levels like tryptase? Do you look at plasma heparin? Are those important for you?
0: So. The, the markers that are, that are the most helpful is kind of like, if you're going to look for a mast cell, quote-unquote, attack, it's almost right. like you're looking for a heart attack. You mm. want a baseline tryptase, and then you want to capture that tryptase when somebody's having a bad event. Right, it's changing. And and that is di- that is the most specific test in the blood to diagnose mast cell activation syndrome. You
1: feel that, yeah, the right. tryptases, okay.
0: Heparin would be great, but you know you have to capture that blood and throw it into a refrigerated tube and Mm. then you have to put it into a a refrigerated centrifuge otherwise so that's really hard to get that's really hard to get and And, accurate okay and then good luck trying to get a 24-hour urine collection that you keep in your fridge and then you take it to the lab and then you have to hope that the lab technician handles it correctly so Other ways of diagnosing it is is really, you know, God forbid we do a really good clinical exam like you were taught at Cook where you strike the skin. Right. You know, literally very simple things. And I think William Osler said it best. If you listen to the patient, they will tell you what's going on. Yeah. And I think this healthcare system just does not give more than six minutes for anybody to kind of share. I think yeah,
1: I think that's why so many patients are we're truly dissatisfied with the system. I, I think they generally like their doctors and hate their insurance company. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, one other thing too, you know, I was reading about this from not from a doctor of all things, but DAO, which mm-hmm. I, I forget what it stands for, but essentially it's the um there's like you have a genetic, I guess if you have those like what they call the SNPs, like a certain Defect. Right. Do you find that in some of the patients too? So or
0: it does exist. You have some, it's called it's diamine oxidase. So it's mm-hmm. it's a basically a way of deactivating histamine. Right. And there are some individuals that have that, but then what do you do about tryptase? And what do you do about mm-hmm. the leukotrienes? Right, but
1: maybe, I want to look at all of them. I mean, yeah. like you, you mentioned too, like even PGT2, the prostaglandin D2 in the urine, which you say you can't get in New York, which is upsetting. Is that,
0: is that still yeah, the case? It's, so yes, it it is. It is. Oh, You're able to get the other metabolite, um, which is PGF2-alpha.
1: Oh, you can get but that. Again, okay.
0: Yeah, you can get that. We're, we're getting better. We actually you know what tests that we can now get, thank God, uh, or at least thank gene by gene. Uh, you can actually look for the more recently formed uh, diagnosis called hyper alpha tryptase or HAT, for right. short. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just a cheek swab where you can send it off and you look for an increased copy number of the gene responsible for one of those enzymes that are found in mast cells only. And you get it back in a week. And if you have more than two copies, that's not a good thing. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's almost, yeah, it's like, it's like with celiac when we do that. I, I use the swap for celiac sometimes with the genetic um, predisposition. Interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're getting better. We're getting better. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just crazy what they 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 you know they prevent us from doing certain diagnostics. So how how that could harm anybody, I don't know. And what do you find? You know, because it is a tricky thing too in treating these like quote mast cell disorders. Do you find a low histamine diet helps? Do the antihistamines, leukotrienes, do they do the job, or is it still
0: a part? I I would say a good number of people, if you intervene, and also you know what you do. And actually, you taught me a really. Beautiful pearl when we first spoke, uh, talking about the distribution of mast cells and their least frequent underneath the tongue, which is why sublingual immunotherapy probably is that much more well tolerated and able to induce tolerance. Mm-hmm. So, so controlling individual mediators is actually quite helpful for some people if the mast cells are being driven by something other than an infection or an immunodeficiency. Because if your mast cells are trying to jump into the fray because you have an infection, that's like putting handcuffs on your police officer when they see a crime being committed. So I usually tell people, you can try it for one or two weeks. And if you notice an improvement, because it's going to work right away. And if it doesn't, we're barking up the wrong tree and we need to go back to the drawing board.
1: You know, it's interesting, too. And I'd like to ask, you know, I do a uh, reasonable amount of holistic medicine in my practice because I found, you know, again, not all the answers were in conventional practice. Uh, so I was curious about a couple of things, too. Um, Cromolyn sodium, we both used for, you know, I, I still like it as a nasal spray. I think it's excellent. I think it's been way, right? It's been way underused. Everybody just takes the latest nasal steroid spray and uses them indefinitely when chromalin would help prevent. It kind of stabilizes the mast cell. But something again that's coming into my world a lot is quercetin. I don't know if you've had any experience with it, but I know so many oh, yeah, patients I, come in. And I think and it's, it's always- a. I think
0: I, I think it's a great. Uh, it's a bioflavonoid which has the ability of stabilizing the mast cells from degranulating. But again. Mast cells are not just about degranulation. They secrete chemicals all the time. And so you might not necessarily interfere with that secretion pattern, but you will prevent it from like exploding into a,
1: a full-blown attack. People have to understand it's not an acute treatment, but if you're taking it regularly, it might keep those mast cells a little bit more stable. That's, that's what it Alcer sounds prevention.
0: like to prevention.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, then then let's talk about two other little uh, people might feel very unusual things, but I've heard this from different people. So that's why I love that you mentioned it because again, like my holistic community or some other interesting guys that I really trust, for example, a contrast showers.
0: I love it. I love contrast showers. Yeah, right?
1: you, don't, you don't love I'll, to take them. You can't tell me you really enjoy taking them because I've done I them. I do. And then, it's, it's, yeah. Well, it depends on how you do, but it's really refreshing. <laughs> do
0: do it? It's really refreshing. So I okay. start off on the warm side right, and then I bring it down to the coolest. You don't have okay. to do that dramatic. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. And and as a person, I hear, so here's the thing. I, I did my PhD in HIV work. Oh, I really? was working in the cold mm. room all the time. Guess who who developed cold induced urticaria? Oh no! And so I've had it for twenty years, oh, and I wow. have to tell you, it's come under control with old-fashioned stuff such as the contrast sours. I oh, do impressive. use fruit okay. supplements, mm-hmm. and I also are on a biologic uh, Zolaire, which okay. has been a game changer for for chronic hives and urticarias. Oh, We're going to get to that well,
1: after too. That's really fascinating. It's really interesting to hear your own. Personal story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you know one of the trick I've learned too. I forgot if I told you about this last time we spoke, but I would. I love to pass along to my patients because I, I and I do have a paper on this that sodium bicarbonate, good old baking soda, mm. a teaspoon in a cup of like hot water. I typically tell my patients to use. Before they're going, let's say to a party where they don't know who have a food allergy, where they don't know what's going to be in the food, you know, or again, a restaurant, it gives them that extra level of security. And what's the reason behind that is very interesting. I have a paper that came out of Japan many years ago, but I saved it because it was so impressive. They had a patient, it was really interesting, highly allergic to wheat. I mean, mm. going to anaphylaxis from ingesting, you know, bread, anything with wheat. And what they did, I don't know what made them think of doing this, but it actually really came out when he exercised. So he could sometimes get away with eating bread, but as we know, there's an exercise-induced food anaphylaxis. If he ate bread and then he exercised, you know, 20 minutes later, he went into anaphylaxis. And what the Japanese researchers did was they gave him sodium bicarbonate, which is good old baking soda, or you can get tablets of it. They gave him 20 minutes before, typical like whatever of a teaspoon or two teaspoons, and it prevented the anaphylaxis. And there- explanation of the mechanism, which I think is interesting from a biochemistry point of view was that it changed the pH in the blood and the stomach Hmm. and that prevented the mast cells, which required a certain acidic environment to release. Fascinating.
0: You know, again, something
1: that could make a big difference to somebody.
0: But, you know, you're almost seeing that with individuals who do, for instance, we recommend. Uh, chrome, by the way, nasal chrome. We'll tell them to put into a crumbling cream. Really, you can make your own. Really? yeah. yeah common, you can take yeah. a you, you take a, a bottle of nasal chrome and throw it into over the counter cetaphil or cerave. Yeah, and you moisturize like normally, and that'll stabilize your mast cells. Wow, interesting. But you're right. Mast cells have the capacity to respond to changes within the tissue, temperature wise. Mm-hmm. You have you have cholinergic right. and heat induced highs, right? And then they also have the ability to respond to different types of of pHs as well, and that makes perfect sense. It's no different than when you see individuals who undergo gastric bypass. Mm. And now you change the dynamics of how food is digested. No different right. than exercise-induced anaphylaxis. Right. Again, you're changing the mechanics of how the food is being seen by that part of the gut. Right. So I love that idea. Thanks for mm-hmm. that. That, that yeah. curl.
1: I was Look, I learned. I also had seen it actually uh, up in person. I was very I was in my fellowship. And I went up to, I have to mention this. I went up with my wife who's a physician also. We went up to Buffalo to watch Doris Rapp, who was a very controversial but was super well-trained pediatric allergist in Buffalo. She used to work with a lot of autistic kids. That's why she got so much flack with allergies. But she was incredible. She documented everything with video. We're talking about the 1980s. Wow. But she was the one who used to tell me, Dean, you could even stop an allergic reaction. She used to do it because she was constantly testing and inducing reactions in, in these kids with what she called Alka-Seltzer gold, which was essentially bicarbonate without the aspirin. Because today, if you get regular Alka-Seltzer, it typically has aspirin, which then that neutralizes the whole effect of it. So anyway, fascinating.
0: One other intervention that actually I have used in my office, which I was fascinated by, was acupressure points. Mm. So you can actually use acupressure points to get rhinitis under control, so the nasal congestion in the passages. But but I actually had one patient who did not tolerate epinephrine. And as we were trying to pull up the glucagon, I uh, did two pressure points that, that I had learned from Dr. Lee wow. and it stopped it. And I wow. was just like, Am I? and I released oh, on, the, on the wrist. I have to it learn was, this. It, it's on, it's on the thenar aspect of your thumbs. Wow. The old snuff box is a matter right, of fact.
1: Right, right. Oh yeah. That's the pain point. That's where if you, right. you pinch it, uh, really, you pinch in there.
0: Right, exactly. Wow. And then also uh, there's another, point right at the nasal septum at the, and also on the legs. And I, I didn't believe it because I, I took my hand away and she got worse and I put my hands back and she got better. And I finally, uh. like, okay, let's stop playing with this. I didn't mean to do a Dr. Rap maneuver. But, wow. But, wow. but no, it's so
1: impressive that, I you know, know I, I've heard these things and that's what part of my this program, the podcast is about. It's just, there's just so many different things that we have to be open to. And I I see, I'm sure you do too sometimes, you know, patients that have been dismayed by seeing some of our colleagues who dismiss all these things without really knowing and not saying I don't know, just saying no, that sounds like nonsense. And it upsets them and, and I think it doesn't do justice to our field. And I when patients ask me that, I again this is my standard answer. I said, you know, Doctors, most of the time, going through their training, pre-med, medical school, they're very smart. They're they're very good at tests. You have to be. The the system weeds you out if you're not good at testing. But typically, our tests are A, B, C, and D, or all the above, or none of the above. And then all of a sudden, you get to private practice. It's not a multiple. It's none of the above. (laughs) (laughs) It's none of the above. (laughs) Right. Which you're always scared to put down because you figure they're trying to trick you. (laughs) Although, (laughs) veterinarians are not scared to do that. They're amazing. They, I mean, they treat every exactly. animal and organ. I, I, mean, I, mean, I, don't even, I mean, I don't even put myself in the same league as any of them. I mean, I you know. Know.
0: <laughs> don't know yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to another cell that also got ignored for quite a little while. And we're going to talk about that. So we were focusing on mast cells. But there's another cell that's been associated with allergies the eosinophil. Mm. And I remember from medical school, there was this saying about eosinophils think of when you see high eosinophil count, worms wheezes, and weird diseases, uh, and I sure. liked from your lecture. You kind of referred to the eosinophil as the SWAT team. So we're not talking yes. about the patrol officer anymore. No, now no, a SWAT team. This is a, a serious cell that we, you know, that doctors again too, when they do see really high eosinophil counts, say, "Oh, this is parasites," you know, cause, mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't be seeing it here because that's in Africa or you know some third world country. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts about eosinophils, and we'll talk about a couple of conditions where I think it's important.
0: Yeah, so, you know, if you think about how a lot of our immune cells destroy pathogens, germs, and viruses, they eat them. Like macrophages will eat right. bacteria. It's like
1: Pac-Man. Yeah. Right,
0: exactly. But worms are too big to
1: eat. Yeah, good
0: so point. you got to tag them. You got to tag them, and then you send in... A cell that has the capacity to release chemicals that can destroy that worm from without. Right. So when you start hearing terms like eosinophil derived neurotoxin, mm. and
1: yeah, it sounds scary, talk, <laughs> it
0: is. And yeah. I'm like, that literally is like calling in the National Guard to start patrolling your streets. You're having somebody who knows nothing about your community, who's trained to attack at the slightest aberration. And so you only want to pull that ripcord when you really do need that cell there. Right. And so when you talk about seeing an increased presence of eosinophils that are causing eosinophilic esophagitis. Well, or I want to talk about asthma, that again in a
1: moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those chemicals are, are being released. And you're willing to release those chemicals if you get rid of the worm. But if there's no worm, you're just getting collateral damage.
1: Right. And, you know, as you know, too, a lot of us, we can see a CBC, a basic cell count. And we'll sometimes see the you know, cells. They're not super high, but they could be elevated. And we see that in allergic patients. Mm-hmm. And, and um, let's talk about eosinophilic esophagitis for a second. Now, this right. is also, get another interesting condition, you know, because mm-hmm. maybe in the last 15 years, has it come to really people's attention? And, again... We we have to thank the allergists and really the GI doctors, the gastroenterologists, because in the past they weren't staining the tissue when they would do an endoscopy for this condition. And now that they're more aware of it and they're and they're you know noting that these cells are not just again bystanders, because I'm sure you've seen and I've heard cases or been involved in cases where your patients have been on acid blockers for years. They feel like food's getting stuck in their throat. They're not responding. And then they find out they have this condition, eosinophilic esophagitis. So I'm just curious, too, because I know you trained at Mount Sinai, and there's a great doctor there, Myrna Jahadi. Uh, is that Myrna Jahadi? She's excellent. She's lovely. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, I'm just curious in your practice, if a gastroenterologist refers to, oh, you know, they see the patient, they see the excessive eosinophils in the endoscopy. And they send it to Dr. Maitland. They say, look, you take care of this patient. How, how do you typically treat those patients?
0: Well, working with Dr. Chahadi, uh, and we have a few patients together, you, you do the empiric diet elimination, but there's a lot of social capital
1: yes. to yeah. To, I was, to I was about to ask you about that. There's about five foods, you know, six foods you have to totally avoid. Ex-
0: exactly. You're down to a really limited diet, and um, right. and, it, and it can be quite challenging, especially in children. Right. Right so you try to identify what could be calling the eosinophils in in the first place again i think an ounce of prevention is why are they there yeah
1: that's a good idea
0: right yeah. and so and not everybody who has allergic inflammation whether you're talking about hay fever or or anaphylaxis will eosinophils be present so who's calling them in and i i hate to defact back to to the mast cell but mast cells have the ability to release chemical messengers that will call the eosinophils in. Oh, okay. Right. And the patrol w- officer. A- And another interesting observation, yeah, the patrol officer's calling in help. Yeah. You know, yeah. I-, I think I've seen a worm. Get here quick. Right. Um, but an interesting observation came out of Children's University, Cincinnati Children's, which is kind of like the epicenter for eosinophilic intestinal right. right. disorders. And a lovely gentleman named uh, Dr. Pablo Abeoya identified that individuals that were a little bit flexible that they had a connective tissue disorder like hypermobile ehlers or Marfan's were three times as likely to have eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders. Oh, wow. So now the question is, is the connective tissue uh, our, our our borders, our skin, our gut not liking this environment and seeing all these chemicals now calling eosinophils inappropriately? and And so... Again, you're having a SWAT team being called in for false alarm. There's been a lot of a lot of nine one one calls, and now they know something. We they just got they get, if they look for it, they'll find it. And right. and and so now most of the treatments are targeted at driving those eosinophils away. We even have a biologic.
1: Oh yeah, that, we'll get to those in a yeah, second. Yeah, a few of them interesting.
0: Where you have the immune system turn or
1: turn fears.
0: you know will attack.
1: The mass oh,
0: okay. attack these eosinophils and kill them.
1: Really? Oh, yeah, wow. it's like mutiny. Oh, wow. I'm like, wow. oh my God. Wow. So so essentially, will you still do the basic standard stuff where you have the patients uh, swallow inhaled steroids to try to. The, I, I, don't, no? I don't I don't, don't, like-
0: like don't? I don't like that. I don't like that because of all the potential side effects that like are associated with swallowing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and also you're talking about in young children their growth. You're Great. talking in Good adults point. regarding cataracts. And right. And it's, yeah. I, I think we can be more elegant about. Ways and 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 again.
1: Well, if you don't have the diet or you don't have the meds, what, what how do you do it? I'm just curious. So if,
0: there's been some efficacy if there's cross reactivity with airborne pollen allergies. Right, right. right. You can use immunotherapy. Therapy,
1: okay, like right. That. I think it would be
0: interesting giving your approach with sublingual immunotherapy to see whether or not that also turns
1: off that gen- you know, that signal. Yeah, ahead. you know that's a really interesting point. I want to maybe just bring things up because you, you know sometimes you bring up great points and maybe that's the time to interject it. So what's really fascinating. Yes. People have sometimes found that with injection immunotherapy, which is not my particular area I like to use, but that that's helped in lowering allergy load. I've found in doing really actually thousands of cases of sublingual, I've only had one case. One case where it was kind of questionable whether the sublingual induced it. But other than that, I've never had a problem. And as right. we know, and we're going to get to later on about with oral immunotherapy, that is actually a worrisome side effect. That even then, when these kids are desensitized to a peanut or tree nut successfully, some of them develop mm-hmm. eosinophilic stress, which is just exactly. much stimulation on their system. So, but that's also again another perfect segue. I want to ask you a little bit about the biologics, which have mainly been used for asthma. A little bit for urticaria, but I'd love to get your opinion. It's really interesting that obviously you said you take Zolaire but because you know they came out with the last few years. I mean, the drug companies exploded on this. They found a co- you know that's typical of the drug companies, by the way. They find uh, they find yeah. a cytokine, a marker. Let's True. go get it, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I, I've always been a little bit worrisome, even though some of them do dramatically help that they're so laser-focused, what else are they doing? And, you know, actually, before we even get into that, I want to tell you something interesting, because you mentioned you did HIV research. You know, when I trained at Cook, we were also a, quite a large HIV center. We A lot of, mm-hmm. my Dr. Greco, I worked with, We though, was part of the AZT studies where we published those first initial studies. Right. But I remember I was working on, during the fellowship, you know, in a research project, it was really interesting that a lot of the patients with HIV and, and AIDS What would happen is that their obviously their T cells would plummet, so their whole immune system plummeted. And then I think this is reactive, their eosinophils and their IgE would go up. It was almost like their primitive immune system was having to sort of take the place. So a lot of these patients were developing severe Uh, food and environmental allergies, which they never had before. So it's just fascinating how the immune system kind of reacts. But anyway, so with all these new biologics, Fancera, which is an IL-5 blocker, or Zolaire, which you mentioned you take is for the IgE monoclonal antibody, and do. Dupixent, which is for IL four and IL thirteen, maybe just tell me because I don't use them in my practice. I've kind of never right. really found the need. You know, I just I guess maybe I haven't seen enough of the severe asthmatics. A lot of them I guess go to pulmonary or right. else is caring for them. But, but well, you know, I'm just curious which ones you like, which ones you use.
0: So, so you're right about the pharmaceutical industry finding a niche, and you know, I'm not as seasoned as you are in uh, having that perspective. But I remember when anti IL five was used in the mid 2000s and it was a miserable failure in the in in the general asthma population okay so they started doing what's called endotyping where they identify the gene with people who have different forms of asthma and if you have this form of asthma that has lots of eosinophils in it there Mm -hmm. are three biologics out there that are used so you have nucala and sink air which interfere with interleukin-5 if you have an asthma that has lots of eosinophils in the okay. blood. But if it doesn't,
1: it so might it not work. It might not work, right. right? Mm-hmm.
0: And then you have Ficenra, which actually tags the eosinophils with an antibody so other white blood cells come and kill your, your eosinophils. Mm. And I have to tell you, I have a little bit of moral dilemma with having one part of the immune system attack another part of the immune system.
1: Yeah, I, right. That's I guess that's the innate feeling I have. It's <laughs> like I, I always I, I've always been very frightened of biologics. I just as much as they, you know, are the cutting edge newest thing, I just feel like you're super laser attacking one area, but how yeah. is it affecting the rest How's, of the body? And, and yeah. what are
0: the what are the long term consequences right. of wiping out your eosinophils? I mean right. my mast cells have been around a long time, so have eosinophils. Right, right,
1: right.
0: And I think the the biologics that I use the most in my practice Includes Zolaire, okay. which has been around since 2003.
1: Right, it's been around for a while.
0: I have a couple of kids that have clonal mast cell disorders Basically, they have mast cell masses on their skin called urticaria pigmentosa, which they also have bad asthma, and they've actually Mm. done quite well. And Mm. since that drug has been around since 2003, we kind of know the good, the bad, the ugly of it. And so it's a good way to monitor. And with any of these chronic disorders, as you know, Dean, it's important to have a medical home where you understand what these patients have gone through and what their triggers. And there's there's a faith between practitioner and patient. Mm. Um, and so I've been using Zolair since 2003. And so I have a lot of confidence in that drug. And then the the newest kid on the block is is Dupixin. And what I find to be very interesting about this, the interleukin-13, you actually are going after the innate immune system. Mm. That's the first drug that actually addresses the innate immune system. And that's the only biologic that has been shown to prevent asthma remodeling so if you keep on getting all this inflammation in the airways eventually you can start to scar this actually stopped the scarring
1: wow You know, the other great thing about Dupixin, I haven't used that yet, but it's interesting when I looked at a lot of the, when I've seen the papers in our journals, it also works great apparently for those patients with chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps, which as we both know is one of the bane of ENT and allergy existence up till now because these patients, it was horrendous. You know, they would have a, a major surgery and then two, three years later would be back Correct. Um with the polyps and they can't they can't taste, they can't smell. Again, almost like a COVID right. thing. And you know, it's interesting because again people are saying this who've gotten COVID now, who've lost their taste or smell for sometimes for weeks or months, that they lose weight. They just you know, you don't almost realize it unless you've had the problem that when you lose your sense of taste and smell, it's it's a major Disadvantage. Yeah.
0: I mean, literally, that
1: you just you know again, you look forward to your meals. You know, it's a whole thing where now you're you're not tasting everything. You just lose that that desire or, for food. Which or or your or
0: your mom who has a baby and your and and dad comes in and is like, can't you smell that on the baby? I'm like, what? Mm. The Baby needs to
1: be changed. <laughs> yeah. There's certain things certain things that you just yes, you, that you, stage right. The, right. The, I, the there's, a, there's a commercial like that or something where the where the where the, where the father actually is picking up the. The, the baby's diaper or something and all of a sudden now i guess it must be one of the nasal sprays that cured him and uh <laughs> he's like well he's like, I, 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 good idea. Be, I don't
0: want this core but you know what's but <laughs> well, what's really interesting dean and in, and with with coronavirus if you look at the medications that are being used to try to help people who develop the covid it is medications that are targeting the mast cells in the innate immune system right. like there was a paper that was in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology not too long ago, where this is a patient who was on Dupixin for chronic rhinosinusitis got COVID and actually did quite well.
1: Really, wow! Right,
0: and wow. so and then and then you look at medications that have been implicated, such as uh, not all corticosteroids, but dexamethasone that works very different compared to the other steroids, right. Singulair, Pepsid. I think there's a role for having a productive innate immune response to the coronavirus that is protective. And I think the one out of five adults who end up with COVID are the ones that did not have a productive innate immune response to that virus. Like your right. innate immune right. system could not it's figure key. out how to deal with it.
1: Right. You know, what's so interesting too, how really allergies and asthma... Has not been considered a comorbid condition for this, which because I I'm, I'm sure you must have gotten many calls. I did like, I have asthma, am I more at risk for having a serious infection with COVID? And all I can tell them is basically what we've been hearing from our societies and the literature that you don't. Right. And maybe you might have a slightly I, better chance. So
0: I and I agree. I think what happens is in individuals that have pre-existing immune disorders, that signal. From the innate immune system outside of the sinuses saying, we don't, we can't deal with this virus. There's not a clear signal to cause that hyper, to call in the SWAT team or whatever version Mm -hmm. of the SWAT team. And, um, and I think because that, that signal is blunted, people end up with mostly common viral illness as opposed to developing this cytokine storm. Right,
1: right. I think that's a great explanation. All right, we got to move on to our, our one of our final topics which I, you know, Oh, this whatever. is the fun. As Aww. I said, I'm enjoying this. I hope I hope the listeners are So otherwise it's <laughs> just me and you that listen to it I'll listen to this podcast a few <laughs> times just to get smarter. Let's talk about immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. And gosh, you know, immunotherapy just for the listeners what because what, a lot of times patients don't know what's out there. So right now mm-hmm. Which we've had for 100 years, you have sub, sub, literally 100 years, subcutaneous, you know, the injection immunotherapy for environmental allergens only. We have mm-hmm. also, now that's available through the pharmaceutical companies, what they call sublingual immunotherapy as tablets for, I think right now, grass and ragweed, and they're working on dust mites. And as you know, and I, what I do is I do the sublingual immunotherapy drops, which I've done for about 20 years for environmental. And I've done the last year for the foods because I'm seeing how safe and the literature now is coming out to support it. So I want to ask you, um, not to put you on the spot, but a tough question. Do you think there's still a place for injection immunotherapy? I, 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 we'll, get, we'll probably get some hate mail calls after this, but do you think there still is a place for that considering some of the risks with it and
0: yeah. Even in, the, I, even in this
1: whole COVID environment. I mean, do you think there's still a place for it in um, in an allergy practice? I
0: I, I, I do. Um okay. more and here's the thing, I'm far from I'm far from a, a quote unquote shot
1: doc. I was about to say um, that. You yeah, are you right. I was about to say, you know, right. I mean unfortunately some of our older colleagues who maybe grandfathered into allergy, it was like line up. But here we got 30 people for shots. You know, I knew even a doctor, he didn't even have a stethoscope. I was like, no, that's can't. <laughs> no, I can't <laughs> do that. I knew a doctor that he, you know, Because the patient's <laughs> reaction was, he didn't even have a stethoscope to listen to him. And it was just oh, like, that's, oh, oh my God. I know. But that, was the, that was the old days. You know, <laughs> know, I, I don't want to malign any of my, our colleagues because we have a lot of really caring doctors out there. But okay, yeah. So you think there still is a place for I, it?
0: I do. In, in, in many ways, it's direct observed therapy. So you have a lot of people, it takes them a while to kind of appreciate you know, asthma, for instance. Right. And there's evidence for, there's robust evidence that early intervention can prevent the development. Of, we're not there with sublingual, but we are there with shot, that it can prevent further sensitization to airborne mm-hmm. as well as potential for foods. And it really is, I, I think it just speaks to the relationship that doctors should have, must have with their patients. Like I have patients who will come in just to get their shot and I'll take a look at them. Like I see them. Right. I'm like, you don't look great.
1: That's right. Well, that, was a, that was a huge advantage, right? You're right. You're seeing a patient quite frequently. That's why I think in so many studies and, and probably in our our own practices, I mean, look, I gave shots the first seven years of my practice and I, and I agree with what you're saying. It's like I was seeing patients so frequently that it was unlikely for them to run into trouble. It wasn't like right. they were going to all of a sudden be having chronic asthma for a month and it wouldn't be noticed, you know, because a nurse might bring it to my attention if they were to give the shot. they say, Dr. Mitchell, can you take a look? And I would listen and say, look, let, let's do the adjustment right away. So it really was very hyper-management, which was obviously right. beneficial to the patients, you know.
0: Right. And also there's just, I think right now there's not a comfort level with multiple allergens sublingually at this point in time Mm,
1: i I would disagree i've done this a lot but against my experience but you
0: but you're 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 an original seriously yeah yeah and unfortunately in this society we're very procedure heavy right as opposed to empowering the patient to take care of themselves and so it's do i put people on allergy shots it's not my first line right do I do sublingual therapy? I do. Um, I was
1: I, what they asked about. Do you use the tablets? The I do
0: use the tablets. I started to try, and I actually just recently partnered with a company that can prepare drops. Oh yeah.
1: Like allergy choices. or something. Right, They're, very good. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, really, choices. They're excellent. Yeah. I know them. I know them quite and well. So,
0: and, and I just need to, I need to kind of just wet my yeah, feet. To,
1: oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, you know, it's funny. That's one of the places where I trained originally. And then they started the whole program after about 20 years ago. Cause I, I came to, them, they said, this is good, I, you know, maybe we should train more people. And, uh, and yeah, they, they, they do excellent work. Right. And they, you know, what's interesting, I just want to make it a, uh, clarify for the listeners. So there are right now two sublingual tablets for ragweed and grass. So it's only two mm-hmm. allergens.
0: No, oh, there's three. Dustmite oh, out. Dustmite out too, so there's yep. three. Mm-hmm.
1: But you know what I don't like about the tablets that are made by the pharmaceutical companies is that they only come in one high dose. And yeah. then you a lot size. of times you have, right, one size fits all. And, you, and two things. You have patients that are obviously, you're doing therapy, they're highly sensitive. So a lot of times initially, they have a lot of discomfort. Not not everybody, but some. And so it turns them off. Whereas with the sublingual, again, the way allergy choices do it, the way I do it in my own practice, I could start patients as we do with shots at a low dose and build them up. Mm -hmm. So again, they kind of bypass a lot of the discomfort if there is any. And also the other thing which I like, which again, allergy choices does and I can do is I can mix a lot of different allergens. So if I have a patient that's allergic to cats and dogs, which they don't have available yet, I'm treating that with sublingual. Right. I actually, you know, I I always love telling. I have two patients that are veterinary students who I've desensitized for. I was, I couldn't believe they're going to the field to horse, to horse. I said, right, well, you know, look, you know, also too. Back in the old, old, old days, sometimes I'd have a patient that came in and they were getting horse shots and cow shots, and this is in New York City, and I'm like, do you have a cow in your backyard? And they go no. I said I don't know why this is in your shots. You know, I mean, because it's like you it used to get the whole kitchen sink. You know, but now we're a lot more precise. You know, and uh, and the only patients yeah. I've done with horses are these two veterinarian students. I've done a couple of equestrian riders, and I have to not leave out. I had one patient in New York who she insisted I give her horse. I said why you live. Right near me on Central Park South. She goes, Exactly. She goes, That was in the days when the horses used to all come by, you know, and take the people <laughs> for rides in the park. Exactly. I'm like, well, That's I'm, funny. I'm sick all the time. So, yeah, you <laughs> get a lot of interesting stories and allergy. Last question on, uh, on desensitizations. Well, how do you feel about porphasia, you know, the new food? I mean, I know it's so new. How do you, you know, as I said, I'm starting to do now the sublingual for the foods because I feel it's safe and I can do a lot of different foods as well. But Bosnia now is like sort of putting in the allergist lap about doing oral immunotherapy, which has been shown to be effective, which is great, but has a lot of risks. So
0: so that's the line that you're walking. And I have right. to tell you, when it comes to food allergies, you know, in, in some ways, I feel that that's a subspecialty in, in our field. you're Right. And I think it's important. You have a niche, a very unique niche, with addressing hypersensitivity disorders with tried and true technique, right? The same needs to be applied to food allergies. And I think we, we're not there yet because, unfortunately, there's only 78 training programs in this country for allergy immunology. That's right.
1: It's really diminishing. It's a really and- important point.
0: And so you have plenty of people who go through medical school and nursing school and physician assistant school who get no exposure to our field outside of their three board questions and the two weeks. And so we have so much to cover. Like I'm, I'm taking care of patients with mast cell disorders and immunodeficiency. I can't think about how to desensitize. You know,
1: it's a, it's it's a, it's a really enormous, it's a, it's it's a
0: a partnership and we have such wonderful programs here in New York city. You have Anya Nowak who's now at NYU. That's right. You have Joyce U at Columbia. You have Samson and and co at Mount Sinai. And Montefiore also has a wonderful program with Dr. Mm. Ramesh. So I, I think there's, there's so much disease. Like I was astounded that one out of 50 have experienced anaphylaxis in this country that's that's bananas
1: yes it's huge yeah my my one thing is which i'm hoping you know that more allergists like you said specialize a little bit in the food allergies and that's why again why i'm doing the sublingual drops because as great as those institutions are and they they are terrific and like dr samson and dr noah who i know are amazing But, you know, the everyday patients who don't want to be in a study, you know, or et cetera. So that's why I'm pretty excited. And I think this will grow, but we need more people, probably like yourself, to hopefully get involved because we need people to get the access, especially anyone in the New York City area. There really has been an explosion of allergy. We know like in the area around Mount Sinai, in the Harlem area, it's so many places in the inner city. But boy, we're winding down and this has been so much fun. I, I just want to summarize yes. a few points for our listeners. You know, I think that to prevent allergies in summary, I mean, really, as Dr. Maitland mentioned, look out at all the chemicals that you're being exposed to in your environment. I mean, it really does make a difference, especially when you get a chance to talk about mold. I mean, mold is a huge issue. I'm seeing more and more patients who are finding mold in their basements, in their attics and, and even in their showers. And, and this could be. Affecting them. I also really again want to emphasize the the care and being careful about requesting antibiotics from your doctor because I really do feel they play a huge role in uh, this whole allergy epidemic. One other thing we didn't even get a chance to touch on today, too, which is really important: that a big study over the last few years called the Leap Study showed that early intervention or introduction of a certain food, such as peanut, milk, egg, and wheat, in a child's diet could help prevent later on from food allergies. And there's actually a company called Ready, Set, Go, which is making that. So we're going to probably have a podcast on that later on. Um, I just, I really want to thank Dr. Maitland for bringing out, at least to me, and I hope all of you, the importance of the mast cell, the patrol officer, and the eosinophil, the SWAT team, because I think it really makes people understand that these cells are important. And then if you have allergic disease, to ask your doctor, which is maybe my problem. And her explanation to me, which I thought was excellent on the use of the biologics, which again, you know, you see a lot on TV and of course patient may call up, but a lot of people are nervous about them and, you know, really want to know what, what is the risk factor versus the benefit. And and then in some cases, the benefit is really worth it to do. So I found this to be so much fun as well. I'm definitely going to have you back on because we have to keep this discussion going.
0: This has been an absolute delight. And I tip my hat to you for, for, spreading the good news I mean honestly this yeah. is you do it in such a phenomenal way Thank
1: so you. I like to put a lot of preparation in. I, and I always tell people just so they make sure that I'm not an egoist like our president I Hate to get political here but you know the smartest doctor in the room is not about me I'm trying to become the smartest doctor in the room by talking to doctors like you so
0: you know what that's this is why we got into medicine in the exactly. first place right
1: Exactly. anyway that, it was a pleasure and same here take care
0: Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.